Welcome to Breakout, a new podcast from The Great Escape. We're a collective of filmmakers, story writers, and comic creators. And this podcast is where we get together to chat about all interesting stuff in media. My name's Rich. With me today is Felic. Hi. Ben. Hello. Chrissy. Hello. And Mark. Hi. I've been really interested in Fury Road, which I watched recently. And it was awesome. It was amazing and incredible and wonderful. What's Fury Road? Fury Road is the new Mad Max film, which um, is basically the director, George Miller, after 20 years or so of waiting, has actually produced another Mad Max film, which is ridiculous. It's just basically one extended car chase. Um, there is dust, there's explosions, there's... It's basically like all the good bits in Matrix Reloaded. What good bits in Matrix Reloaded? The 20-minute car chase. Oh! <laughs> yeah, of course. I keep forgetting that. I, just, I Sometimes I just wipe Matrix Reloaded completely out of my head. Yeah, maybe that film should have just been that. Anyway, so what have you been doing, Mark? <laughs> um, clowning around. No, I'm literally uh, helping Alex Bourne, a very talented filmmaker, working with a few times, helping him out on his short film slash pilot, Clown Face, um, which I can't say too much, but involves clowns, clown axes and violence. Um, and that's been done uh, up in Birmingham. Uh, Alex Bourne is also one of the directors on a upcoming horror film anthology called The House of Screaming Death. Now, The House of Screaming Death is a kind of homage to, you know, classic British kind of hammer films. So, you know, if you like the stuff that The Great Escape does, you'll, you'll like this too. And it's actually uh, funding on Indiegogo at the moment. So I really do urge you to check that out. It's got vampires, necromancers and a uh, evil restaurant, apparently. Uh, Satanism or something, I don't know. But no, it's, it's looking to be brilliant. Um, and I'm on my way, basically, to see them uh, short, a couple of days after we're recording this, because I'm stopping by Birmingham on the way to Liverpool, where I am going to a Comic-Con um, as part of Hellbound Media, a horror comic company, uh, which also publishes the Gabriel Cushing comic, uh, and we're going up there for cons. So if you like comic cons, uh, hopefully we'll uh, see you there. Cool. When, when's the um, convention in Mersey? Uh, this Saturday, which is date-wise. That, I think, will probably pop- be happening after, before this goes out. So. Before this goes out? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we also have other cons that will happen after this goes but, out, but we can't mention So anyway, what, what Mark is trying to say is if he did see you at the con that happened two weeks ago, I think, something like that, then he says hi and nice to meet you. <laughs> and I, I can tell you about this podcast there so that you listen to it and hear me mention Okay, this it's is like getting... travel. I was going to say it's more convoluted than Inception, but, you know. Regarding the Indiegogo, um, it'll be linked in the description, so um, yep. you'll find the information there. Cool. Um, well, I had a pretty quiet May, actually. I did... Um, did uh, Camp Remo back in April and uh, also um, went off to the London Book Fair. And so I, I've had a little bit of a, a, a burnout kind of month this month in a sort of recovery phase. Um, but actually that's been quite nice because it means I've got to uh, find some time to actually read some books and watch some movies and take in some stories. So that's been really cool. Um, since our, our topic today is a, uh, is, a, is a film related one, I will pick a, a film that I have watched recently that I enjoyed. Um, I managed to get some time to have a little uh, flick through the, uh, what do you want to call it, the the more obscure end of Netflix um, 
and uh, found a, a Norwegian film called Tali, which is a, a sort of horror mystery sort of story about a, a girl found in a uh, an underground bunker by a, a couple of guys cleaning up a crime scene. So it's uh, um, quite sort of scary and, and, and mysterious and uh, well worth watching if you're happy to listen to a film in Norwegian. So. So it's a very funny. I've seen it just there was some, There was some funny bits in it. That's very true. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, so that, that's me. What, what have you been up to, Ben? Um, well, I've been doing mostly sort of techie things, really. Um, as we're getting to the end of editing Carnival of Sorrows, uh, we kind of had a sudden realisation that it's going to take a long time to render out all that 4K raw footage. Um, with the machine that we've got, which was a, a 2006 Mac Pro. Um, they're still, you know, fantastic machines, but um, yeah, we were thinking it's going to take a while. As soon as it takes a couple of days to render out a short. So um, yeah, we just uh, managed to pick up a new, well, I say new, it was a 2008 Mac Pro, uh, the 8-core one, um, for a few hundred pounds on eBay and just been setting that up and that's going, you know, that's screamingly fast compared to our our old one and it's, it's quite amazing really that for that sort of money you can get, you know, an older machine that is probably just as powerful as, you know, the bottom range of the, you know, the new iMacs and things like that. So um, for literally a few hundred quid you can get, you know, a, a really, you know, good spec Mac for a few years old and you know that should certainly speed things up um, with the rendering of uh, of all that footage um, also as well excitingly now we've you know we've got two Mac Pros so um, my project now is to try and figure out if I can uh, join them together and make some kind of render farm to make them uh, even more quicker um, but um, yeah there we go anyway that's uh, the kind of things that I've been up to mostly techie stuff really I feel like if you do hook them up together you also need to have six monitors with some kind of graphic that goes round in a circle across oh, the monitors we're definitely on that already we've uh, in fact the, the Mac Pro that we just bought came with a monitor and we've kind of added that into our edit suite so uh, we're quickly building up a wall of monitors um, <laughs> and a, a room of computers um, so yeah I, I mean soon we're, I think we're going to have to you know, inform the national grid and tell them that we're going to be using a, a bit more power. Um, <laughs> Just on, on the it, plus side, your heating bill goes down. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Just don't so let it gain sentience. We'll we'll do all of our rendering in the winter, I think, so we don't have to pay for heating. Um, Interesting thing, actually. Have anybody seen uh, recently? There was a, a news article about um, e-radiators, which are actually um, uh, servers in a radiator that crunch through data in your house to generate heat for your heating so um you know it seems like ben's ahead of the game on that one yeah we we uh saw that article felic and myself and um got very excited about that and uh, unfortunately it's not available in the uk i don't think yet but um very interesting in signing up for something like that when uh, when it does become available well if i ever get a big stack of uh, servers i know where to pipe the heat <laughs> And uh, Fellow, what about you? Um, yeah, I started off May uh, finishing off bits of um, Great Escape projects, just tidying up um, some of the edits on um, Gabriel Cushing at the Carnival of Sorrows. 
Um, also um, doing some colour work on some of the other projects. Um, I actually realised that I've, even though we've been shooting in 4K for the last few years, I've never actually watched any of our projects in 4K. Um, and I was looking into um, 4K tellies and seeing that the price at the moment is actually... It's quite shocking how cheap they are. I mean, you can get a 30-inch Ultra HD, which is it's just under 4K telly, for about £300. And that's kind of the price that full HD tellies were about a couple of years ago. So it's kind of interesting just how quick um, the technology just has, has been bought into quite a mainstream kind of prices. And, and, you know, this was in Argos. This wasn't a, a major kind of specialist store. So I think really soon people are going to be start starting to watch 4K content and, mm. and we'll actually be seeing some of the stuff that people have been shooting in 4K um, mm. in our homes quite soon, I think. Well, I guess this is an ample segue to get onto our main discussion, which is um, what impact do you think the availability of these affordable 4K cameras like Blackmagic or the, the Reds has have had on the indie film industry. I think it's only a good thing um, to to you know film in in a better resolution. I mean, it, it gives more options. Um, I think you know at the end of the day, when you're making an indie film or a major film, you just you just film on what what whatever you can get your hands on, the best thing that you can lay your hands on at the time. So, I think it's it's only a good thing myself. Mm. Uh, one thing I'm sort of a bit worried about actually with this uh, because up until now um, when 4K has been available in a camera it's been in a, a fairly high-end camera even a sort of consumer level uh, 4K camera has been quite a professional bit of kit now we've seen it with HD when HD kind of hits the consumer market um, quality of things start going down and HD becomes a bit of a buzzword where as long as it's HD nothing else really matters um, and I'm a little worried actually that as 4K starts going into more consumery cameras and cheaper kit that that sort of thing is going to happen as well and another image quality things are going to suffer um, but it will be okay because it's still 4K um, which, uh, you know, obviously kind of defeats the point of it a little bit. Mm. In a way, the in the television market, there's always got to be a gimmick to actually try and persuade people to buy a new television. I mean, previously you had um, 3D and also obviously the, the, the HD phase, and now you've got Ultra 4K and uh, quad, um, quad HD coming in to try and persuade people, hey, you should buy a new television. Okay, you've only had the last one for about a year, but hey, you should buy one anyway. Interesting. Oh, sorry. Oh, no. No, I was going to say, interestingly, <laughs> actually, taking your fads, fads, actually, with the, um, uh, I think you said, mentioned something the other day about uh, 3D televisions and the market for those is actually a lot of people, uh, companies are now backing out of that. And so um, that fad actually maybe has, has, has run its course a bit. So. That is very true. I mean, in, um, in the UK, at least, the BBC, which is obviously one of the which is our major public broadcaster, has pulled out of 3D projects. And now the major uh, digital satellite provider, Sky, has also pulled out and they're saying, we're going to scrap our Sky 3D channel. So not all, all gimmicks uh, long-lived. I mean, 3D, actually, that was something I was going to ask, is that the 4K is, is then coming in as the replacement for the market to try, you know, they've tried 3D and that's not taken up. So... I mean, it's the reason we're seeing this sort of push for 4K and to lower the prices because they, they do need something else to sell. 
Um, and with television, we always have to consider that it, it is in competition with the cinema. Not not all the time, but there is very much a sense that um, TV and cinema are constantly trying to give something what the other one can't do. So that, especially cinema with 3D films, they came out and was like, look, 3D films, you have to watch the film at the cinema now, you know, rather than waiting for the DVD. And so then you get the 3D televisions coming in and an attempt to sort of go against that. But perhaps there's not enough or the technology is not adapt, adapted enough for, for television to work. You know, you all have to sit in the right position of the house or the couch kind of thing to make it work. So is the 4K the the alternative attempt at televisions and television manufacturers to to come up, come up with another alternative? Hmm. I've always... Uh, thought and found that with 3D in particular um, I don't think it's worked in the home simply because it's a hassle I mean you go to the cinema and you watch something in 3D uh, you're in your seat uh, you can't move you can't have distractions with things like going on the laptop or on your phone um, you're kind of sat there uh, and you're forced to watch the film in a, a sense but at home you've got all the other distractions and it's, it seems that it's a lot harder to sit down and put that amount of focus into watching a film in your home environment. Um, so for me, particularly at home, you know, 3D uh, is great when you get into the film, but it does seem like a big event um, to watch a film when it shouldn't really have to. And I think that's probably, you know, one of the reasons why 3D isn't working. I mean, if you didn't have to wear glasses for to watch 3D in the home, then I think it will be a big hit and it will, you know, really sell. But um, until, you know, that happens, it is an inconvenience. And that's why it was just a gimmick that was short-lived, I think. Mm, it's true that 3D is definitely seen as event, um, cinema, event cinema, event television and so on and so forth. So it's not a surprise that people are not that fast when it comes to just general TV. I think um, actually getting back to our, our topic about cameras, actually, three um, D I think was never something really that became accessible to um, to indie filmmakers um, at all. Um, but actually, four K is something that obviously indie filmmakers have the opportunity to take advantage of at a reasonably affordable level. Um, I think uh, what's interesting is what you were saying, Felix, about the fact that you think that the, for the, the price point for four K television is actually coming down. Because uh, I was actually thinking that. Um, most indie films, whether they're shot high definition or 4K or whatever, often don't actually get a cinema release. Um, and actually the main point of consumption for that media is through television screen or through uh, tablets or PCs, um, through you know, through digital streaming. And so in a way, these, these 4K televisions have preceded the actual ability for indie filmmakers to have their content consumed in that, that manner. So what do you guys think about that? Um, no, I, I think that's actually kind of interesting, especially what you're saying about the sort of the use of the cameras and the way they can sort of you know come come across and allow indie filmmakers to get their stuff into other mediums. And there's um, an interesting attitude I think that comes with that, and actually ties with what you were saying, what Ben said earlier. That I was talking to a DP the other day, and he said, you know, when he heard about you know that these guys have their red camera, he said, you know, he he loved to use red because a DSLR for all its you know, HD capabilities is it's it's not just about that kind of you know it's HD it's actually 
what else the red can do in terms of grading in terms of picture quality in terms of getting that 4k what you can do with it and you said you know it's that kind of standard is so much better than if you're doing using dslr and i think that also sort of relates to what you're going to get on the television picture getting that quality on the tv that you're talking about dslr not necessarily great quality yeah, I mean, 4K is just one of the, I mean, resolution is just one small part of overall image quality. I mean, it's, I think 4K as opposed to 3D is, is more of a natural progression. I think resolution will continue to increase just as it has done in uh, Steel's digital cameras until it's become, it comes to a point where you no longer need to increase it and there's no, you know, realistic reason and useful reason to increase it. Um, it is very true, but you are seeing now people talking about 8K and 8K television, not just cinema. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily think 4K is the end point. I think it's a lot closer to it than we have been before. I think, you know, mm. shooting 8K for 4K output seems quite a interesting thing at the moment. 8K tellies, I'm not sure about that at the moment in terms of TV size with lounge size and stuff like that. But um, it's definitely interesting, yeah. Um, I think this is interesting in, in the sense of looking at the home market DVD and indeed DVDs or Blu-rays being released um, for indie films is often a way they go forward. You know, they can get a deal that way and come out straight to video essentially. And it does make me think of what's happening with Blu-ray because we're talking about this as filmmakers and even as, as film enthusiasts, you maybe have a stronger sense of picture quality. But for the sort of average viewer or average person i don't think it's such a big deal in the sense that we see how blu-ray just it, it's big it beat hd dvd but it hasn't replaced dvd it's not been as successful as perhaps they'd like and i think because if you look the vhs to any kind the worst dvd and the worst in you know, the best vhs you could still sometimes find a huge gap dvd to blu-ray for a sort of average consumer you're not necessarily going to see as big Elite. And even if you do, it's a difference between high quality and very high quality. Now, to try and get around this, they're now starting to remove all extras and shininess from DVDs and putting on Blu-ray to push people over. But even then, I'm not sure our viewers going to want to go beyond Blu-ray. Are they going to how much quality is actually willing to be consumed by, you know, consumers? Well, importantly, um, you raised obviously DVD and people moving people over from DVD to Blu-ray. But what's interesting is both DVD and Blu-ray combined is a dying market, according to sort of the, the trends at the moment. Digital is right up there, and you're seeing a lot more people buying and watching stuff digitally than they are buying physical discs. I think in terms of uh, DVD being good enough quality, I definitely understand that and see how a lot of people don't notice it. But I think it's one of those arguments with like TV, black and white TV in the 50s. I mean, a lot of people were used to it and were happy with it. And why would, you know, they probably didn't want to change it. And I think it's just a natural progression of, of things. And, you know, you, I wouldn't necessarily expect people to rush out and buy 4K tellies, 4K discs and stuff straight away. I think it's just a, a natural progression and, and something which you know, I don't really see a drawback to. So essentially you're saying that um, there needs to be some sort of, something that persuades people to go for 4K, the, the killer app essentially, much like Avatar was the killer app for 3D. People went, oh, I must watch uh, all the cinemas switched over to 3D in a way because of Avatar rather than any other 3D film that was coming out. 
And the same thing probably applies to 4K, that something is better in 4K than it is in HD. Potentially. I'm not sure it's going to be such a quick switch over, though, as, as it would have been with 3D, personally. Mm. Um, actually, I was going to say, um, the, uh, interesting what you guys were saying about uh, people not noticing the difference. I think uh, you're far more likely to notice the difference between a good or a bad story in a film. I think um, there's, there's a lot of elements that, that you know, uh, you know uh, influence whether or not somebody thinks a film is good and actually the 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 resolution is is probably way down there on the things that they that actually matter to people watching those films um and actually that's uh, something i was thinking about in in sort of working uh, in you know on, on on this podcast in advance is that um the drop in price of high quality cameras for for filmmakers has actually um sort of removed a sort of barrier to entry into making films of a sort of visual quality you know that's sort of saleable perhaps but um mm. but there's a lot of other attendant costs involved uh, you know you still have to pay your actors and your food bills and so on and so forth and, and and those sort of costs are still there so in a way um you know uh the quality of the films that are produced is is, is sort of not necessarily dependent on the quality of the camera and um and perhaps maybe one of the things we're seeing is actually is, is more of the the, the, the sort of poorer quality things actually getting to the to, to, to the consumer through digital means and so on and so forth and maybe that's you know both good and bad I don't know um, yeah interesting you brought up about um, quality and, and with 4k and something that's gonna um, kind of be happening very soon you know with uh, the 4k TVs and and 4k discs which are being released soon. Um, is indie filmmakers would be able to get 4K um, quality media to the consumers to watch in 4K in their homes. Now, there's a bit of trickery going on at the moment with the big studios, as in um, a lot of the the big films, uh, high-budget films that are being filmed at the moment, are all filmed in 4K, 5K, 6K and beyond. Um, and being delivered to uh, the big cinemas who have all new fancy 4K projectors. But if you look into the, the small print, you'll see that pretty much all of those films are mastered in 2K. Mm. So the consumer is actually being tricked by going to the cinema, seeing all the fancy advertising for 4K, thinking they're watching a 4K film when it may mm. have been shot in 4K, but it was rendered out in 2K, and then being shown on a 4K projector. So, mm. um, I mean, it makes you wonder as well if if the consumers are kind of believing it's 4K and not really noticing the difference, mm. other than they're just being led to think that it is bigger and better. And That's actually very similar to draw a parallel between films that are shot in 3D and uh, converted for 3D, mm. in that you, you know, you're watching a sort of almost inferior upscaled product rather than the actual genuine items. That's actually a very good point. It's an interesting conflict between classic filmmaking styles and 3D is that everyone wants to shoot their films in CinemaScope. However, scope lenses don't work well with 3D films. So often a scope film will be always post-converted into 3D because it's, it's impossible, according to filmmakers, to actually have a 3D scope film shot in 3D. It's interesting. I mean, it's, it's interesting how the technology moves forward, really. I mean, 
these kind of things are driven by not just consumer markets, but by you know the competition between television and cinema, and with a desire mm. to try and find the next big thing. We're talking about three D. Three D's come and gone so many times. I mean, it sounds absurd, but even in the fifties, you had a version of three D, not necessarily mm. any good, but at the time that was groundbreaking. Mm. But it didn't last. And then in the eighties, you had another sort of three D kind of. Um, Wave, especially in the early 80s, where horror was especially keen for it because it used the whole, you know, things flying out the screen at you. Mm. It was very much the, the big thing then. Um, it's always a bit peculiar watching Friday the 13th Part 3, not in 3D. That's very true. And of course, um, people forget actually the new wave of 3D was led by horror again. Two of the first and most notable examples are My Bloody Valentine 3D and Final Destination 3D. Which admittedly both came out after Avatar. No, they both came out before Avatar. They both came out before Avatar? Yes, both oh, wow. came out before Avatar. Um, which is why it's notable, yeah. They sort of, again, partly leading the way in that kind of um, field because it kind of works for that genre of film. But what's sort of interesting now is that 3D feels much more here to stay. But it's not replacing all other film as other things like colour or sound. Again, sounds absurd, but these were big ideas at the time. Mm. 3D is more sort of becoming part of a tool, I think. And I think actually Avatar's done some good in that way of showing that 3D doesn't have to be about things flying out and that you can use 3D selectively and you can use it in different ways. And if that's the case, I'm kind of wondering how 3D will start to be applied in using 4K and will 3D ever become used more in mm. low budget kind of productions because I've always seen one Scar 3D it, mm. I'm not going to comment on what I think of the quality of that film but the fact that they attempted the kind of 3D look to it on a very low budget to me is, is quite interesting so I suppose the question is mm. will we get more 3D on a lower budget and how will it relate to the 4K cameras that are coming mm. interesting I think from you know my point of view as a technician on uh, the film sets, um, for me, I think doing any kind of shooting in 3D will be a bit of a nightmare. Um, I haven't had the experience of doing it, but getting the whole 3D rigs together and getting the cameras synced to be able to do that, I think it just adds an extra element um, into the filmmaking process, which could be very time-consuming and also very costly if it goes wrong, i.e. if the cameras aren't synced properly and an expensive scene needs to be reshot, for instance. Um, I can't imagine low-budget um, indie filmmakers wanting to tempt fate with 3D. I can believe that. I think that 3D is actually far more um, costly and difficult than people imagine. It's not just a case of slapping two cameras together. There's a lot of work to be had, a lot of planning to be made. And I don't necessarily think that really most low-budget indie filmmakers will move into the 3D market. However, um, regarding the movement towards 4K, I mean, do you think that this these new waves of very high ultra HD cameras are actually having an effect on indie filmmaking? Is it changing? Um, yeah, well, certainly as 4K uh, cameras are becoming uh, more and more cost viable, um, you know, you've got things like uh, the Blackmagic, um, 
I mean, even things like the Red One, uh, for instance, um, has come down in price. Um, you can, you know, get hold of them quite cheaply to film with. And it's a technology that um, is becoming available uh, to indie filmmakers where, you know, they've never really had that technology available to them and they've always had to make do with semi-professional kit. Whereas now, um, you know, as the digital age is firmly in place and 4K has been in the professional market for some time now, um, all of the, uh, the hand-me-downs from the big studios are filtering down through to the indie filmmakers and I think they're coming out with some you know fantastic stuff and some really creative high level stuff at you know low budget costs. Yeah I was just going to pick up on the 3D thing in terms of shooting from an indie level um, if you had the budget to you know you just scrape the budget together to shoot on something like a red epic if you had to shoot in 3 3d you wouldn't be able to afford a camera of that level because you'd need two of them mm. so everything if every kind of level you'd shoot on in 2d with one camera you'd have to move down a level um to be able to shoot 3d in, in terms of resolution as well you know to probably you'd finish in 2k as a lot of films do that are 3d so there is kind of a, a step down with when you shoot 3d mm. i'd also imagine there's also a lot of hidden costs involved mm. as as we know 4k is not necessarily um cost effective when it comes to storage mm. it does take up a lot of space and imagining that 3d is double that mm. let alone the fact that you've got multiple renders and multiple variations that are stacked upon the um, the standard 2D pipeline. Actually, that's a good point. I was just wondering, maybe you pick it up in a minute about 4K and the storage on 4K, because that would be an interesting question. Um, but, yeah, no, what I was uh, kind of thinking about there, actually, is how, how indie films sometimes aren't necessarily about storytelling quality, like Chrissy said. Now, this is in definitely no way in a, a slit of indie filmmakers, but some people... Certainly, I mean, we look at a company like the Asylum, they're quite big, but they are they make films deliberately sort of playing on being sort of air quotes bad kind of thing. Or I think the word you're looking for is naff. Well, yeah, you know, <laughs> Sharknado or Mock Funsters, like Transformers. I was going for Schlock. Yeah, Schlock. But then you, you, can, you can get even lower budget indie filmmakers who are essentially um, making it for the cover, you know, you... You call it zombies versus anything and put a really messy cover together that's nothing to do with, you know, the film. And, and then maybe slap a 3D on because you're doing really, really cheap post. But, you know, sometimes there's that sort of debate when the technology comes in to allow you to put these labels on something like shot in 2K in 3D. Mm. But actually you can possibly just put something together that isn't actually great but might sell because it's got the right lines or the right sort of selling point to it. I don't know if that's a That is very a true. I mean that the technology angle is always something that indie film does go for. I recall um I believe it was something that came out of Cannes was oh look this this film that's been shot exclusively on iPhone six. Actually I've got uh, some details about that here. Um this was a article from Wired magazine from I think it was October two thousand fourteen, so about six months ago. Um which is uh, entitled The iPhone 6's New Camera Could Forever Change Filmmaking. Um, and uh, 
they've uh, they've got a link on there to uh, a film that was shot entirely uh, entirely on the iPhone six, um, and I actually think that uh, you do wonder whether that film would have sort of garnered any attention if it hadn't had this gimmick attached to it that it was was shot on a phone. I think uh, there's no possible way that you could get decent filmic results from a from a phone just because you, you're working with a fixed wide angle lens you know you've got sort of I mean I think there are accessories you can use but um, you know the, the size of the sensor and the quality of the lens are never going to be anywhere near as, as good as, as even what you could get with a DSLR um, for instance which a lot of uh, indie filmmakers actually do choose to go with with DSLRs so um, no I just thought that actually made me think back to what you were saying before actually it's almost interesting as what about the story? Maybe this film does have an, a brilliant story, so in which case, as much as, you know, the problem with using wonderful HD, 4K and having terrible story, what what's the sort of, um, what's the stance with something, say, having a brilliant story but shot on an iPhone? So that's something I suppose mm. to... Yeah, and, and I would like to know if, if it was, for instance, a really good film that, that uh, became popular and then it was revealed that it was shot on an iPhone, I think that would be, be one thing. But I think this one was actually sold on the basis of it being shot on an iPhone. But I, mean, I haven't watched it, so I, I can't really comment. But, uh, mm. you know, it, it does, you know, there's, there's questions there over what, what the reasoning behind choosing that medium really was. But in a way, that what's overarching there is the, it's the same thing that, that played, say, films like 28 Days Later or Cloverfield, where the gimmick reaches over the actual story itself um <clears throat> yeah i mean with things like shooting on iphone um and dslrs and, and things like that um yes it can be done and yes you can get you know fantastic results uh from it and if as a tool uh, that particular camera is um the filmmakers play to the strengths of that camera then they can produce something that visually uh, the consumer probably wouldn't be able to notice much of a difference compared to professional cameras. But, you know, with it, it comes with severe uh, limitations. So in terms of, you know, when you're shooting, uh, you have to always bear in mind um, what you're shooting, how you're going to shoot it, what it's going to look like. And so... You know, you may be saving money on the actual equipment, but you won't be saving time. You'll be spending, you know, that equivalent amount of money in time um, adjusting what you need to do to compensate for the limitations in these cheaper cameras. Um, things like, you know, DSLRs, uh, the stability and reliability of them is really quite shocking compared to... Uh, the high-end uh, professional digital cinema cameras and while it is possible to you know film on something like a DSLR um, a lot of care and consideration needs to be you know put into the filmmaking process because it's going to throw up a hell of a lot of hurdles for you that you probably wouldn't get with uh, a more expensive um, more professional camera. Mm. I recall that back on um on zombie vampires we shot most of that on a pro grade track camera but then we did some pickups on a dslr and we found the dslr f totally unreliable it would constantly just pause and break down all the time yeah exactly and if you're um if you're spending a lot of money on 
uh, filming a particular scene uh, with, you know, special effects that can only be shot once, um, you definitely want to think twice about using an SLR for that kind of, uh, that kind of shot. Um, you know, if you've got one big money scene, it might be worth hiring something, uh, you know, more reliable for that shot Mm. so that, uh, you can be sure that you, you know, you get what you need. Of course, switching back to Fury Road, as I mentioned at the very start, um, there were some special effects scenes I know where they used budget HD cameras, uh, in basically they're stuck in various places, not because they were talking about reliability or style or whatever, but purely because they were cheap. So it meant that if they broke them, then, you know, no biggie. Yeah, certainly as, you know, um, cameras to have for multiple angles where if uh, the camera fails and you don't get the footage, um, it's no big deal. Uh, certainly they're great for that, just for getting, you know, the extra coverage. Mm. Um, but certainly if, you know, it's your only camera or you're filming for your main shot, then um, if you can only do the take once, um, I wouldn't feel comfortable using a, a cheaper, you know, equipment. Interesting, very, very quick point. Um, uh, actually, sacrificial cameras, as you might call them, for, for those sorts of shots where you can, like, strap them to the outside or something, throw it out a window. Uh, I think, actually, the, the indie filmmaker's go-to camera with that has got to be the GoPro, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. That sort of thing. Most, probably, because most of the time they can survive it anyway, so... Definitely. Um, yeah, I suppose what's interesting about this again is that we're starting to think about budgets and money, and and there's a lot of indie out there that is really low budget that that literally all they can afford is the DSLR, and it's sort of interesting then you know at what point do we consider it not to be worth doing? I suppose in a, in that sense. Yeah, I mean <clears throat> when you talk about budget. Um if you take in the whole project uh, and budget it, you know, from that, it all comes down to where where are you spending your money? Um, I mean, if you save money on things like uh, cameras um, and other equipment, then the money that you're saving, you're going to be spending in post. So if you're not paying for your post, um, if you're you know, you can get someone to work on your post for free um, and it takes them a hell of a lot lot longer uh, to do all the post work than it would do if you were spending the money on something more professional, then yeah, go for it. But if, you know, you're paying uh, for that post um, or it's quite time sensitive, then uh, it's a bit of a false economy really saving money on equipment because you know, the, the money you spend on equipment is going to save you time later on down the road. Um, I was just going to say the... Uh, ah, mine's gone blank. Uh, two seconds. <laughs> anyway, what I was... Actually, something I was going to raise. Um, something that I think has is happening regarding the 4K revolution is that you're... I think that the DSLR is actually falling out of favour. What's happening is that you've got the... Um, the budget DSLR that people are using for their HD footage and you have the red cameras or you're basically your 4K, your reds, your uh, Arri Alexas, um, your um, Blackmagics that have basically replaced those high budget DSLRs like the, the 5D which used to be the go, go-to camera for anyone who is a 
pro-indie filmmaker. And so really, I think that you either you're on a uh, massive, even, it's a, even, either you're on a budget and you go for your cheap D- DSLR or you're spending a bit more and you're going for a quality um, prosumer or, or quality camera rather than your high quality DSLRs. That was actually what I was gonna gonna say, but um, the, the the market has actually almost split now. I think between uh, those indie filmmakers who have no budget and can scrape together enough to buy a, a DSLR, uh, and those who have any kind of budget at all, in which case they can plumb that budget into getting the, the you know the digital cinema camera, and and actually that that investment is usually well worth it. So, mm. I mean, it's it's still. Difficult though, I would say. I mean, certainly we're, we're looking at this um, from a certain perspective, and I think it is good advice for people to think about putting it into the technology. But equally, one thing it could be one reason where perhaps post on sound and other sort of aspects of post perhaps aren't the strongest in indie because they're like, we get all together, we're doing it free on DSLR, and afterwards they realize they don't have the money or the time to put it together really nice. But then I think of um, checking in. Which is a film uh, shot in DSLR by the people who are now doing House of Screaming Death, which I mentioned earlier, and this has done very well for itself. But essentially, they um, some of them, now that they're pro, but some of them work at a college. They get, they were borrowing film equipment from the college. They were using their own DSLRs. They were pulling it together. They got the hotel very very cheaply as a kind of marketing tool which has worked out well for it so that they were very much pulling it together as much as they can and so I think again and they spent hours in post hours in, and there were still issues in post because of that but it kind of goes to show I think that it, you can use a DSLR but it will have complications but I think the circumstances should be sort of taken into account I think to an extent I guess in a way if um if your core concern of your indie film is whether you're shooting it in 4K or DSLR or whatever, you're starting in the wrong place. That really, you should be shooting your indie film because you've got a great idea and not because, hey, I've got a fantastic camera. I'm not sure because if at the end of the day you filmed it all and then realised you can't get it to the place you want to get it to because you've shot it on a DSLR or something, then it could, it definitely should be quite a, a big consideration I think I mean a, a good story and all that is obviously the main reason someone's watching a film but you wouldn't want to let something as silly as a camera hold your film back from getting where it needs to be I suppose that is very true I mean the BBC standards for HD filmmaking often exclude uh, DSLR shot films and tend to say you have to be using a, a, a pro camera in order to, for it to be on there Although at the same time, I did watch a whole uh, news package the other day that was shot on a GoPro, which was very strange. Mm. That was on BBC News, but there you go. Um, yeah, I remember watching that uh, that too. And uh, we caught a reflection of the cameraman who um, we couldn't quite believe it when we saw a GoPro on a stick. And that's their, uh, that was their idea of um, a Steadicam. But uh, it was only a short news piece anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, going along um, with, uh, on an indie filmmaking um, kind of route with with these cheaper cameras and stuff. um, Yeah, I mean, it visually, um, it can detract from the story as well. 
I mean, if you're watching something with whatever camera you choose, you have to know how to play to the strengths of that camera. And in post, you have to know how to make it look visually stunning. Um, whether you're using uh, a DSLR um, or maybe uh, a Red Epic or a Blackmagic or, you know, whatever you're choosing to use or even, you know, an iPhone 5, if you're used to using one particular thing and dealing with that particular camera in post and then suddenly changing to something that has a completely different workflow, um, even, you know, really professional cameras, um, you know, like Red Epic, for instance, if you're not dealing with the footage properly and correctly in post, it can still look um, quite shockingly bad on screen and can detract from the story anyway. So, you know, whatever you choose uh, to use, um, you really need to, uh, you know, do your research on how to deal with the footage afterwards to get the best from it. Mm. I think that's a good place to end um, this discussion. So, yeah, I think that's it for the uh, inaugural Breakout podcast. Um, so thanks to Ben, Felic, Mark and Chrissy. Uh, oh, and of course myself. Um, if you like what you heard, be sure to rate and like us on iTunes, your favourite podcast services, like us on Facebook, anywhere you find us really. Plus, make sure to check out our website at thegreatesc.com which is filled with our films, our stories, uh, web comics, and so on and so forth. Uh, I've been Rich, and we'll see you next time. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.